three, two, one, liftoff. We choose to go to the moon. That's one small step for man. Welcome to Anthropod, brought to you by the Society for Cultural Anthropology on colanth.org. We are pleased to announce our new partnership with the American Anthropological Association. I'm your host, Willie Lempert, and this is the second episode in our special three-part podcast series on the anthropologies of outer space. While outer space is a field site far from what some of our listeners will associate with anthropology, we hope that you will continue with us on this journey to better understand what it means to be human beyond the planet on which we have evolved. The intro you just heard was made possible by the recent release of a large NASA sound archive reaching back to their earliest missions. You'll be hearing a variety of these rich clips throughout this series, such as the current audio, which consists of radio waves recorded at the edge of the Earth's atmosphere. Engaging deeply with the three co-authors of the article Relational Space and Earthly Installation in the journal Cultural Anthropology, we seek to connect their work broadly with current events, popular culture, and the NASA sounds. Building on the first episode in this series, Haircuts and Billionaires, in which I talked with David Valentine about a variety of issues related to the Newspacer class. In this episode, I talk with Dr. Deborah Battaglia, Senior Research Professor of Anthropology at Mount Holyoke College, about the social life of moon dust, interspecies space projects through the diary of a space zucchini, the radical psychological shift of astronauts who have walked on the moon, and cosmopolitics. I'm Deborah Battaglia. I have long been interested in a set of questions that extend the reach of anthropological inquiry concerning world-making off-Earth. How do we take our values with us into space and into thinking about space, given that we're all Earthlings? (laughs) And designing the kinds of uh, relationships and carrying the kinds of values with us as we either imagine or actually physically travel in outer space. Beautifully said, and thank you for being here. What would you say are your particular interests in relation to this emerging field? Yes, um, thank you for asking and inviting us to do this incredibly interesting podcast. I really appreciate it, really, because a lot of people don't naturally go to outer space as a place where anthropology has a place. But there's culture in space, and there are people and machines that people have made there. I'm just pleased that you're taking an interest in this project. I think it's important to go off Earth. I'm interested in the inner spaces of outer space, how humans and other living beings like plants relate to each other when they're living and working together inside an orbital space station, which is kind of an artificial planet, as one astronaut referred to it. Um, Somebody else talked about space stations as life support systems. So it's amazing to think about life going on inside an artificial life support system. And And also interspecies relations developing and feelings inside an orbital space station. So my interest has taken me off Earth uh, through the diaries, through the letters home, through things like uh, Twitter accounts and tweets and also digital transmissions 
home from space. And I've also interviewed uh, astronauts and cosmonauts who are long duration. That means they've spent at least six months in space. And that's my interest. In my case, how living and working in space focuses us on world making, because that's what people are doing up there. And they're not just accepting the conditions that they're in, interestingly enough. They can't deviate far from script, and they wouldn't. But they do push back against this cold, machinic environment in which they find themselves. Some people have said they find themselves feeling more human than they did on Earth, getting in touch with their humanity in space, and certainly in touch with Earth. They have conversion experiences in space to Earth, and people become more attached, not detached, when they're off Earth to other living beings and to the pulse of the Earth. Nicely said. Can you speak to how anthropology can uniquely help us in understanding the human relationships to outer space? Critical anthropology, I feel, needs to kind of turn its attention to what humans are doing and making off the Earth, especially, um, in my view, as regards relations of power, um, how life unfolding in zero gravity from all possible perspectives can become a kind of exemplary site of cosmic diplomacy. People are making and must make their peace um, with each other in these small cramped quarters of um, space habitats. And also they can become diplomats really for their their particular uh, countries of origin by rotating above the territory divides that separate people separate species on the planet. In light of the endless approaches one might take to engage these topics, which do you find most useful in your work? So I kind of approach space station living through the lens of science and technology. That's my particular interest. And the space station itself is a home for science, a space of experimentation, a space for liberating science from programmatic interests uh, so that it can be appreciated as a space for artisanal and artistic experimentation. One of the astronauts I spoke with talked about his work in his personal time off task and when he's not sleeping as a sci aesthetic. He was deeply interested in, you know, how to sort of tinker uh, with what couldn't, wasn't known and couldn't be known on the ground for producing a living environment that was driven by curiosity. And in personalizing his six months in outer space, he did that by, you know, crafting a diary of a little space zucchini floating through the environment he was living in, breathing the air that humans' crews were breathing in a baggie, in a plastic baggie. So imagine yourself looking to grow a plant in space outside of the usual greenhouse environment. You're going to be trying to figure out how to take the seeds that you bought from a hardware store down the block in Houston and actually get them to sprout. He used 
Russian toilet paper and old underwear to create a sprouting <laughs> a, a sprouting system. <laughs> and the seeds did sprout, and they went in all different directions because there's no up or down in space. This is microgravity. It's, they could go in any direction. In fact, his interest was in multidirectionality. Would the plant know how to grow up or down in the absence of gravity? And this little zucchini knot, <laughs> he called it the, the seventh crew, and sometimes people refer to their plants as uh, the green crew and come to refer to themselves as the human crew. So you've got these little plants floating around the space station in the case of astronaut Donald Pettit, who are given a voice. He produced a diary called Diary of a Space Zucchini, in which the Zucchini observed and reflected on its experiences of being in outer space and growing and nearly joining the great compost in outer space, how the sunflower and broccoli, who were his crewmates, were struggling to survive and how one of them didn't make it and how there was a tear in the eye of the gardener astronaut who had been tending to them when that happened. The interesting bits are in the details sometimes. So in the case of the zucchini plant, he talks about, the zucchini does, ventriloquized by the astronaut. He talks about, you know, how his roots are tickled by the algae that is added to the growing solution that pools in the corners of the baggie as it floats through outer space. Because this is an aeroponic plant. Its roots are open. They're free and floating in the air. You can see them in the baggie. And it was an experiment in what he called passive aeroponics, that is, aeroponics that in, in zero gravity, allowed the plant to travel any place it wanted to go. And so this little plant was responsive to his gardener's voice, his gardener's feelings and moods, the other green crew. And this blog created a picture of a very affecting bond, a bond of feeling between a gardener and his plant experiment, kind of his pet experiment, that was really moving to a lot of people who listened to the podcast that NPR put together on this uh, topic, reported being moved to smiles and tears. March 23rd, we are recovering, growing greener every day. Our water diet was replaced with a new tea, one that is not salty. I have new leaves. I am no longer naked to the cosmos. June 12th, a great sadness has taken us all. Sunflower Sprout has died. He became weak his cotyledons could not emerge from the hull. We returned Sprout to the compost from whence he came. I guess we were all made of recyclable materials. July 1st. Today, Gardner and his crew will depart in their seed pod. The replacement crew is ready to carry on in their place. He is wearing his spacesuit undergarments 
not too stylish, but functional. He gave all of us an extra long smell. He said that what will be is for the best. Gardner had tears in his eyes. He reached up and turned out the light. In the frontier, you should not be afraid of the dark. I had a college student listening with me um, who responded, Aw, I really love that plant. But more to the point of the experiment and of the diary, school children, K through 12, and also science students in college tried to replicate the aeroponic experiment. And now aeroponics has become a kind of movement because when plants are floating free in the air with their roots in the air and just taking up moisture by misting or by capillary action, they don't need as much water. And in drought-stricken places on this earth and during climate-changing times, that's very important for supplying food to people who wouldn't be able to grow food under normal conditions of um, sufficient water. So aeroponics then requires 90% less water to grow a very healthy, nutritious plant like a potato or a superfood like kale. So what's happening in space connects directly to what is going to be good for plants and people on Earth. Can you speak to how this might relate to larger issues of space diplomacy and cosmological politics? Or as you have put it so nicely in the past, cosmopolitics. That kind of creative activity is its own kind of diplomacy. It connects species differently so that we can make our peace with one another. That's how I see the significance of space diplomacy. But of course, that's at a, on a very personal scale. And on a very different scale, there was the case of in 1975, during a very tense moment in Cold War tensions between the U.S. and the Soviet Union, when delicate matters of nation-state borders were being negotiated, the case of what was called then the handshake in space, a U.S. and Soviet spacecraft meeting and docking together in space using a new technology that would allow a spacecraft from any country to rescue the crew of any other by uh, means of a universal docking system. And that has now become usual and customary for space travel. Any ship that's in trouble can be and would be rescued by anybody, including those who might have enemy relations on Earth. So outer space at that moment became a realm for détente. And in the process, the two commanders of the spacecraft became very close friends as they came to know each other's systems and cultures. The American visited uh, the Soviet commander and was taken out to Kazakhstan where uh, they roasted meet together and, you know, drank uh, a lot of vodka and had wonderful, wild experiences of Soviet 
wilderness life. And then the Soviet commander came to the American Southwest, where Americans were flying jet aircraft in the cowboy way. You know, they were they were wild. They were reckless from the Soviet point of view. And that explains, tells us a lot about how people can understand one another's uh, processes of relating in dangerous extreme environments. I was walking down the street in New York City uh, about a year ago and there in a street vendor's stall was a t-shirt with the Apollo Soyuz handshake on it. And I was really surprised that that still had that hold on people's imaginaries of how political differences could be bridged by looking off the earth for ways to cooperate. So I am interested in space diplomacy, in cosmo politics, but with an emphasis on the cosmo, and am interested in uh, also concerns about how we are using or abusing space by, for example, littering outer space with dead satellites. 90% of the satellites that are on orbit around Earth are not operative. So that's a security concern, a major security concern, and also extraction concerns that we don't take outer space as a place just to mine minerals for our own purposes. And without thinking that there could be life out there as we don't yet know it. We're placed on alert for a kind of second era of new space colonialism, of military surveillance and also passive surveillance technologies that are operating for better and for worse in outer space. And this is another reason for anthropology to be in space, that is, we need to remain vigilant that some of the technology that we are sending into space is not participating in some kind of Star Wars narrative and pursuing another arms race in space. That, for me, is um, the fear that placed me into this project to begin with. I'm interested in peaceful uses of outer space, and there are many nations that have dedicated whole documents and thousands of hours of negotiating time to crafting guidelines for peaceful uses of outer space. Those concerns seem especially relevant in light of the recent election. I wonder if you might connect this to your previous anthropological work with people interested in UFOs and extraterrestrial beings, as well as how that relates to the current rhetoric on immigration fears and policies. So I became interested in aliens imaginaries, imaginations of what alien beings are. And to be honest, my point of view, uh, when I'm asked how an anthropologist would approach an alien being, if a spaceship were to appear tomorrow on the horizon, is to say, welcome, <laughs> uh, is to extend hospitality. And, you know, so maybe you get it wrong and they're not very friendly towards us. Well, uh, at least we haven't been the ones to initiate bad 
feelings and close contact that leads to tense and uh, disastrous relations. So my feeling about meeting an alien that emerges from a spacecraft, let's say, as we see it in the movies, is greet this alien entity by welcoming it and learning from it and learning from the idea of the alien. That can be an alien who's a person who is crossing borders now as a non-citizen and an immigrant who is without papers. It's the same set of concerns that are often projected onto the figure of the space alien that we're living as we confront immigrants and other alien persons who are needing to be taken in, welcomed, understood in their own terms. So I see the reach of outer space uh, research as fundamentally to return us to what matters in our living together on Earth as different species and as uh, different kinds of persons across our differences which is anthropology's primary project. And those may be human or non-human differences depending on the culture. But that's my motivation for uh, space studies and for future studies, more importantly. That was very well said. Another thing that I think was mentioned in something that you wrote was smells of the Mm -hmm. moon, smells in space. David mentioned a little bit about cutting hair and hair change. But I wonder, just those little human sensorial Mm -hmm. things. Um, There was a recent thing about (laughs) the sort of noise and the music on the other side of the moon. And you mentioned not being an earthling. These non-translatable sort of Mm -hmm. sensorial things people discuss. I think that is such an interesting thing for anyone. Mm -hmm. I'd like to do that uh, through an unusual route. I spent some time in a kind of NGO for artists in Miami. And one of the artists I met there, Heidi Nielsen, produced an installation that was extremely well-reviewed that she called Mars Kitchen. And what she did, because she's a techie, sciencey person, was to create a kind of multiple balloon environment of what a Mars settlement might be like. And she focused on what food might taste like on Mars in their gravity and in their environment, that atmosphere, on what would happen to people who are traveling long distances, what would happen to their taste buds. And she did this by consulting scientists and experts at Columbia University who joined the table of the artists at Mars Kitchen and basically gave them information about what living on Mars would smell like. So I was interested when I was talking with the astronaut I interviewed in those kinds of questions, what it was like uh, living in what he called a tin can, a metallic atmosphere where it smells like kind of hot metal, and how pleasurable it was for him. This is the astronaut who grew zucchini. How pleasurable it was for him to smell a smell of earth. So it was when zucchini flowered that he was suffused with joy. It was a sublime experience for him. As a matter of fact, when zucchini flowered, 
the rest of the human crew would trade off maintenance duties for five days for just one hour alone with zucchini. (laughs) Smelling zucchini, being with the plant, having the experience of Earth in space. That was beyond nostalgic. It was a profound connection to Earth through uh, the scent of Earth. Now, going back to Heidi Nielsen's installation, one of the things that happens in long-duration spaceflight is that the taste buds are affected. And one of the things that visitors to the installation had to do was to swab their tongues with chlorine because that was how the food was going to taste on Mars. It was going to taste as if it had been chlorinated. And she then took the, she created that kind of artificial scent that one astrobiologist described as being a typical scent of a settlement on Mars and infused the atmosphere with it. She grew plants in a greenhouse that people used to cook their own meals. But in order to taste the meals and to see if their dishes were coming out as something that a human would want to eat, they had to taste their cooking through their own chlorinated tongues. Um, Anthropology is about making the familiar unfamiliar and making the unfamiliar familiar. And so this artistic exercise, which was based in uh, space science, was an experiment, really, in experiencing, not just imagining, as you would in speculative fiction, living off Earth. And the net result was that people became greatly appreciative of the odors, the sounds, the ways of growing things and of cooking things and the ways things tasted in their everyday lives on Earth. Using the Sputnik sound as a starting point, can you speak to the impact of this event and the larger concerns of the Soviet space program? When the Russians first entered space and placed Sputnik on orbit, the sounds were iconic for humans of a reach into space that they had only imagined humans could actually accomplish. The initial effect was fear. People were afraid. They didn't know what Sputnik was. They didn't know what it could do. It was an alien thing that was launched by an alien power relative to the United States and many in the world as well were very concerned about what this thing was, but some were moved to awe. I believe that this nation should commit itself to achieving the goal before this decade is out of landing a man on the moon and returning him safely to the earth. When Kennedy had the idea of putting a man on the moon and gender noted, his initial plan was actually 
for the Soviet Union and the Americans to land men on the moon together. That didn't happen because Russian technology couldn't keep up and because Kennedy was murdered before the vision could be fulfilled. But that was his original intention. We know this from fairly recent research that has uh, revealed his plan, his vision of having not an American on the moon, which is how most of the world sees it and saw it, but of having two enemy powers cooperate in landing on the moon as the ultimate act of detente. So the entire Apollo program, which was, of course, crafted also by uh, the Soviet Union at the time as a space race, was intended to be converted from a race into a cooperative enterprise. And I think that one fact might have changed the history of our relations to space-bearing, if it were more widely known. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things, not because they are easy, but because they are hard. Because that goal will serve to organize and measure the best of our energies and skills. Because that challenge is one that we're willing to accept, one we are unwilling to postpone, and one we intend to win, and the others too. Can you speak to this unique experience of the Apollo astronauts, many of whom spent significant time on the surface of the moon itself? The Apollo program was an amazing endeavor, and being aboard the ISS now, those were shuttle astronauts. They were up-down astronauts. They weren't long-duration astronauts who were on the moon, walking on the moon. But that experience had a transformative effect on Apollo astronauts themselves. One of them returned home and became an artist who almost obsessively painted moonscapes and to the extent that he cut to pieces his own Apollo badge, which had moon dust clinging to it, in order that he could include moon dust in his painting. And he never, in effect, left the moon, even when after returning to space. Another founded a new religious movement, an astronaut who's recently died, Edgar Mitchell, in which he gathered people to him who could relate to the cosmos as he had, having seen what he thought was a UFO out the window of his spacecraft. Mostly, some astronauts from the Apollo program returned home to become Earth scientists, and most were struck by the home they returned to. While they were off the Earth, Vietnam War was happening on the Earth. And some faced profound dissonance in realizing that while they were off the Earth, there was so much violence that was occurring on the Earth that they joined the anti-war movement. People, in effect, created many moons while they were up there. Each one had his own moon uh, as he related to it. When you imagine the, the uh, cosmos as a kind of commons for people to debate what kinds of knowledge matters, 
and when that knowledge matters and what happens when different knowledge systems clash, you can appreciate how intimate the moon is in the case of both the Apollo astronauts who continued to use moon dust in their artistic work or to refer to the moon as a kind of sacred site in a new religious movement and how personal in the case of the people I was working with, the Sava people of Papua New Guinea, who at the time, these were early years in the 1970s, had an idea of a moon that could be climbed into by an earthling that she could actually contact and a moon who was very much closely in contact with Earth. I love the idea of all these many moons, and it, it almost seems like it's a literal floating signifier to a lot of people. A literal floating signifier is a great way to, to think of it. Remember, this is also sensorial. It was the people who were on the moon would describe the lunar regolith, the moon dust, as smelling like gunpowder, but not quite. Well, these were all military guys. That was the closest thing they had to, to compare it you know, to compare the smell to. And how the lunar regolith behaved while they were there was surprising because the Apollo astronauts attracted it. It gummed up their space suit systems. <laughs> it, uh, it made its way even through the uh, soles of, of their boots. It made it impossible to look out their visors. They'd activate the moon dust and when they were in their moon buggies, they would get so far and realize that the dust, which is tiny, tiny, very, very tiny, powdery uh, substance that is not actually dust because it's regolith, it's been, it's cut like grains of sugar, only much, much smaller, would make its way into the apparatus, the machinery of the moon buggies and stall them out. They had to create bumpers for the wheels of the moon buggy out of uh, sticky tape, you know. But they only had so much oxygen, so they had to do some very quick uh, repairs of their moon buggies so that they could get back to the ship before their oxygen ran out. There are so many ways in which the moon is an active agent itself in shaping the consciousness of scientific discovery. You just described a scenario that I find so interestingly similar to being deep into the Australian desert and getting flat tires mm -hmm. or the dust getting into the engines and having to do what people call bush mechanics to get back <laughs> while you have enough water. It's so interesting how similar of a sort of experience that was. Um, <laughs> um, yes, I mean, there, there are similarities, but the moon dust returned to Earth inevitably, clinging to the spacesuit systems of the astronauts, was first treated as possibly polluting to Earthlings. The lunar regolith was rigorously cleaned and, and separated from them and, and placed into vials and slides and studied. And it was determined that really there was nothing there to study. I mean, it was just um, <laughs> pulverized stuff, you know, dust like you find in a desert. But it wasn't until the invention of electrospectrometry that the moon dust revealed itself as far more complex than dust in a desert or anything on a beach or anything like that. Mind you, that has its own complexities. But electrospectrometry revealed that moon dust actually had bits of iron in it and other minerals that made it a possible hazard to breathe. 
and was, of course, in the lungs of many of the Apollo astronauts. That you could liken to something like black lung disease uh, if they breathed in more of it, and instead it was um, moon dust lung disease <laughs> that some of them uh, suffered uh, for having walked on the moon or been in contact with the lunar regolith. But before it was discovered that it had all of these capacities to impact humans' bodies, the regolith was just stored in a kind of Quonset hut in Johnson Space. I mean, it was, it was actually um, considered to be of no great uh, scientific interest or value. This is before the electrospectrometry revealed it to be of great interest and value to science for the minerals that it contained. But one of the things that happened was that a guy who was a tech who was charged to hang out and protect this regolith that nobody was interested in in the early days of the Apollo program just took a, a vial of the moon dust home with him and traveled with it to an auction house in London and placed it on auction for a hundred dollars. <laughs> and because he figured, well, look, you know, I mean, there's just all this stuff, you know, and, and nobody has, it's not a value to anybody. And, and I can pick up a hundred bucks and nobody's going to miss it. What he didn't count on was that some patriotic person would spot this American moon dust <laughs> on auction and complain that this was the property of the world, actually, not even of the American people, and had no proper place at auction and it was returned, <laughs> unsold <laughs> to its storage facility. So you have this interesting pollution and purity story that anthropologists like to think about in the space program. It's talked about as uh, concerns about forward and back contamination. So are we going to contaminate life as we don't yet know it by landing on another planet? Well, yes, and inevitably. We won't recognize life. We won't recognize the environment. We are going to leave a footprint. That environment in which we, say, set up a, a colony on Mars, which is a cosmology that is interestingly circulating at the moment through the popular public imaginary is going to be toast, as one astronaut put it to me, until we figure it out. <laughs> and so that's one issue is forward contamination. Are we going to contaminate the places we contact physically with our machines or with our bodies? And conversely, back contamination. Are we going to carry back with us something that we don't know is a pathogen, is something that could be harmful to life on Earth. So the scientific itinerary of moon dust, which is at one point safe, at another point annoying when it clogs things up, at another point dangerous when it's understood to contain iron that could be inhaled, and then off to one side also part of an acrylic painting, is really interesting for its social relation to human beings and to how it, it really upturns any ideas about spheres of purity and pollution that don't include the journey, the itinerary. That is so fascinating. And the final question about predicting the future, which is, of course, a fraught question. And you might even, instead of answering it, comment on that kind of question itself. 
I don't think there's any way of predicting the future. I think there are ways of imagining and hypothesizing the future that send us on imaginative leaps based on what we know and basically see where our questions land us. And this is the side of hypothesis making that is very exciting to me. Um, my concern is that the future not be thought of in the present moment as if we could know it or as if it's all warm and fuzzy up there or that it's full of creatures out of Star Wars. I'm really very concerned that our thinking about the future returns to the idea that it's not here yet. And we sometimes behave as if it already is by experimenting with futuristic and hypothesis generating uh, materials and scientific practices. But the future is not here yet. We're in the here and now. And the futures that we're making possible are possible futures. And I'm very excited about how we might use the technology and the knowledge and the, and the feelings that are generated by people who have close connection to the question of what our futures across species might be like to take that question off the earth beyond the greenhouse and as the little space plant did send it traveling into extreme environments thank you so much for joining us on the show today deborah you've left us with a great deal to think about fantastic willie thanks so much i'm willie lempert and thank you for listening to this episode of anthropod i want to thank marios valeris the executive producer the society for cultural anthropology and nasa for providing their sound archive Please join us next month for the final episode in this series with Dr. Valerie Olson, who will discuss outer space as a new human environment in relation to food, medicine, and architecture. We would also like to thank New Hampshire Public Radio for the use of their clip from their moving dramatization of The Diary of a Space Zucchini, voiced by Sean Hurley of their program Word of Mouth. See you next time on Anthropod. And from the crew of Apollo 8, close with good night, good luck, and bless all of you, all of you on the good earth.